Good morning, Memphis. Oh, I'm so happy to have you back here with me this Saturday morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So if you were with me last Saturday morning, then you know I was joined by Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong of the AAPI COVID-19 Project. They talked about some of their preliminary findings on how COVID-19 has impacted Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. And we did speak briefly about the rise in anti-Asian hate, and you can still catch that episode on wyxr.org. But today, I wanted to dive deeper into the sexualization and the fetishization of Asian women, particularly as it is tied to some of the more publicized instances of anti-Asian hate. So for example, like the Atlanta mass shooting that took place a couple weeks ago. So to talk more about this, today I'm joined by Dr. Anna Storty. Dr. Storty is an interdisciplinary scholar of Asian America, feminist and queer theory, and mixed race art and culture. Currently, she is the Garini Dean's Postdoctoral Fellow in Asian American Studies at Dartmouth College with an appointment in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. And this fall, she will be joining Duke University as an Assistant Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies and contributing to Duke's expanding Asian American Studies program. Welcome, Dr. Anna Storty. How are you? Hi, Sana. It's great to be here. I'm doing well. I'm sipping my coffee. It's actually Copper Cow Coffee. I want to give a plug to a woman-owned Vietnamese coffee business. Yes, I love that. You know, I have recently switched to decaf. Wow, bold. I know. (laughs) I never thought I would, but I think, you know, I maybe maxed out on coffee consumption, or at least for a little bit. So now I'm on um, a decaf kick. I even feel a little guilty even saying that for some reason. (laughs) There is a lot of judgment when it comes to folks' coffee's consumption, but I feel you. Do what's best for you. I support that. Do what's best for me. So now y'all know I am a decaf coffee drinker (laughs) here on Let's Grab Coffee. We love all the coffees, including- No coffee shaming, no decaf (laughs) shaming. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm so happy to have you here with me. So folks, y'all should know that Anna and I um, went to the University of Maryland and I think we first met in, was it an ethnography class? Yeah, ethnography of performance, right? Performance, yes, yes. I was like, I know there's- That was like fall 2014, (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Because that was my first year in the PhD program. Yeah, so that was a fun class though. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that class. Uh, but that's how we first met. And now look at us, <laughs> graduating. We are, we are here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. And I was so excited to have you join me today because of your expertise, right? Around Asian America, but also feminist and queer theory, um, particularly as we're thinking about Asian women, um, as we're thinking about um, sexual and racial fetish and how this really all relates to how Asians in America are seen in particular. And also I wanted to talk more about this mo- 
most recent highly publicized um, case where Robert Aaron Long targeted Asian women or specifically Asian operated spas. Mm-hmm. And that really early defense of, well, this was a sex addiction, right? And that it wasn't about race, which we know it can be about both. And mm-hmm. so I really wanted to start there because I know there is so much kind of confusion around like, okay, is it a sex addiction? Is it about race? And even for people who are saying, well, it is about both, really unpacking that and providing a space for people to think more deeply about what it might mean to have a racial fetish, right? And this the sexualization and fetishization of Asian women as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue with racial fetish is that oftentimes it's regarded as an individualized act or description of one's own sexual preferences. And I think what needs to be important to remember is that racial fetish is just one of the many sexual preferences held by white supremacy. So we can think about white supremacy as this larger uh, kind of form that actually does have sexual preferences. And those preferences are always going to be racist, they're going to be violent, and they're going to be fetishizing. So in the case of the, the women in Atlanta and Asian women more broadly, we can actually trace white supremacy's erotic life back to the battlefield, back to war and to U.S. imperialism more broadly. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a couple of things. So you talked about um, how people think about like racial preference or sexual preference in particular as a very personal choice, right? And divorced from these longer histories. Um, so I love this idea of first just introducing that these quote unquote personal preferences really aren't personal, but they are informed by something, right? Mm-hmm. And so could you talk more about this racial fetishization, particularly of Asian women um, in that context? Sure. So, I mean, when we spend time thinking about the details of the Atlanta case, details that kind of allow us to see the, the richness in these women's lives without just fixating on the sensationalized and dehumanizing violence of their death, we get to learn more about how the sexualization of Asian cis women, but also Asian queer, trans, and non-binary folks is actually a form of US imperial warfare. And so as you mentioned, there is a long history here. So at least four of the women murdered were older than 50. And I think two of them were around the age of 70, which means that these women kind of entered the world at a moment of catastrophic US war across Asia. And so these wars afforded the U.S. the ability to build towards an empire status through the sexual exploitation of Asian women. And we can get into details later, but generally uh, that these women found themselves in the U.S. only demonstrates how their lives were dictated by things like war, displacement, migration, which together manifest Uh, under a set of very unequal laws that uh, exploit migrants of any racial background. So to to truly contend with the shooting in Atlanta um, and the Atlanta metro region is uh, in ways that broaden out to the more scandalous topic of racial fetish, we must actually recognize the life altering forces of things like racism, militarism and policing that happened um, and that were very much at the center of the issue of the mass shooting. And so these structural powers overlap in history and into today such that 
Asian and Asian American women are simultaneously made invisible, but also made hypersexual. So it's a it's an interesting contradiction. It's a deadly contradiction. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about this kind of construction of Asian women um, and Asian American women as hypersexual, um, simultaneously invisible, and then also this idea of submissiveness. So submissiveness as well. So this hypersexual submissive woman um, and how that might be playing into how these women were seen, but how Asian women are seen more broadly and where that comes from. Yeah, I mean, when we think about racial stereotypes and how Asian American women or Asian women more generally are stereotyped, we oftentimes find ourselves remembering things and uh, notions such as China doll or lotus blossom, geisha, concubine, butterfly, um, dragon lady. And so within those, there's there tends to be the, this idea that Asian women are hypersexual, but that they're also the epitome of what um, white masculine bodies might want in a potential partner. So mm-hmm. these are women who are going to be submissive. They are going to follow the rules. They are going to make sure food is on the table. They are going to make sure that they don't cause any trouble. They are always made available to you. And I think that's kind of one of the insidious notions within these racialized fetishes is that they're paired with stereotypes that go back towards uh, what kind of allows white supremacy to continue to find life, which is not necessarily only whiteness. It's how can we introduce other groups of color into these white notions of sexuality and race. Mm-hmm. Yes. And even these ideas, which you really listed, you know, some of these stereotypes that I'm sure for listeners, they're like, oh, yeah, I've, you know, I've heard of that, maybe even said that and never really thought, you know, critically about what this means or how this might be impacting even how I'm thinking about Asian women. Um, but could you talk more about where some of these stereotypes come from? Yeah. Um, the first case, I mean, at least kind of in my own spending time on the internet the past two weeks uh, after the shooting, I've seen a lot more folks talking about the Page Act of 1875. Um, But before we we talk about the Page Act, I think it's really important to remember that within that same year of 1875, that was the first time Chinese people appeared before the US Supreme Court. And this was a case uh, kind of known as the case of the 22 lewd Chinese women. And it kind of involved this stereotype and perception that Chinese women were all prostitutes. And so it centered on a group of uh, young women who were denied entry into the US port of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so they were denied entry, even though they had what they needed to have, which was uh, adequate travel documentation. And it was only because the immigration inspector at the time thought that these women looked like prostitutes. And so uh, they, he felt it upon himself to protect the, the US land through the entry point of California. And ultimately the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the women um, not because they you know, were doing a righteous act of social justice or anything, but because they wanted to allow the federal government to maintain its power to regulate immigration, which is where we find the Page Act of 1875. 
And so the Page Act of, 19, of 1875, excuse me, was introduced by this representative of California named Horace Page. And he wanted to kind of eradicate cheap Chinese labor and the immorality that um, Chinese women brought over into the US. And so uh, again, it's this notion that Chinese women were prostitutes and it created the first effective immigration law, restrictive immigration law in the US, which prohibited the entry of Chinese women. And it also foreshadowed the 1888 Chinese Exclusion, 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which um, is kind of, kind of commonly understood to be the, the more, the first immigration law, but it's actually, there's a deeper history here that is one that begins with the understanding that Asian women are not only hypersexual, that they're sex workers, but that they bring disease and that they will kind of take the the husbands of the white women and infiltrate U.S. society in ways that will not be beneficial for the for the future growth of the country. And so, again, it's like thinking about how these laws have written into U.S. history this notion of um, things that we can understand as the comfort women, the war bride, and the sex worker, the sexual imagination that is so integral to the way that U.S. foreign policy and uh, the bodies that exist within the U.S. continue to view Asian women. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, you know, as you're mentioning, how the inspector took it upon himself to say, wait a minute, these women look like prostitutes, mm -hmm. right? So even this idea of like, what does a prostitute or what does a sex worker look like? And then also this idea, well, I must, you know, protect, you know, my fellow Americans um, from this, from this foreign threat, but also a very specific type of threat, right? So mm -hmm. both sexualized, but also thinking about um, uncleanliness, right? And all these other layers um, that we see even invoked, you know, in this, you know, specific case of Robert Aaron Long, but along the way throughout US history as well, right? Protecting um, the family, protecting the nation from these foreign threats, and in particular um, from this immorality. So it really is just, you know, in deeply embedded within kind of our cultural consciousness um, as a way to think about, in this case, Asian women. Definitely. And it kind of links toward or it's a maybe just a symptom of this larger concept that is known as Orientalism, which mm -hmm. is uh, Edward Said, who is a post-colonial scholar, uh, kind of wrote about this concept of Orientalism in order to describe the way of, so the Occident, so the way that the, the West imagines, exaggerates, and uh, sexualizes Arab people and culture in a way that is so uh, opposite of the way that Europe, the way that Europeans are understood. And so Orientalism, while in Said's understanding, kind of is about Arab populations and Arab culture, there is a different type of Orientalism that gets held up within the US nation. And that's kind of one that is more focused on the Far East. Um, but still to this day, it is anything that is not the West. And so when we think about the West, we can think about Europe, we can think about the US, um, kind of the global North, the, the, the well-off countries and continents and empires. And so Orientalism is one of the defining ways that 
we can think about the first encounter when colonizers would go across the Silk Road, when Marco Polo went to China and came across these luscious silks and these delicious spices. And there was just a lot of eroticism and exoticism that paired the ways that these objects were being discussed. Objects, not only spices and silks, but also people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's so important to think about um, the objectification, right? So not just these, you know, physical products that were being traded at that time, but also the physical bodies, right? And how they were being portrayed and looked at. And we can think about um, how Asian women, again, were seen as these objects, some, in some cases, you know, carrying disease or, you know, Im immorality, but in other cases, just object, uh, objects of intense um, exoticism and interest because they were so different than what was thought of from the Western point of view. Exactly. And I think that's why I've been so disappointed with the media and its depictions of the mass murder. Um, I mean, on the one hand, as you mentioned, we saw the immediate humanization of the white man, of Robert. He had an addiction, he had a bad day. Um, but on the other hand, the women were immediately dehumanized. They were assumed to be trafficked without any evidence suggesting so. And I think the complicated issue that I continue to notice is that not enough people are invested in the notion of decriminalizing sex work and even kind of like thinking differently about sex work. And so the media, which of course isn't a monolith, um, it's still either reduced massage work with illicit sex or it denied sex work altogether, thus denying the very real life of those working within the sex trade. I apologize if you hear my cat scratching, but she's very important. <laughs> and so we can talk more about sex work later if there's time. I don't want to kind of distract too much about the like broader issue of hypersexualization of Asian women. Um, and but it, because it really does necessitate that we think about the history of this, like this is not a one time thing. What happened in Atlanta is not an instance. Um, it's actually a manifestation of a long legacy of, of U.S. war, um, of colonialism, of these huge things that are kind of difficult to <laughs> parse down. Right, absolutely. Well, let's take a break. And then when we come back, let's see if we can get into a little bit more of this history of imperialism and militarism that's also really supporting um, some of what we've seen or some of the conversations we've seen around the shooting and around thinking about Asian women and, and racial fetishization as well. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Anna Storty, and we are trying to break down some of these really big concepts, right? Talking about um, militarism, talking about imperialism, talking about sexualization of Asian women. So really big concepts, but some topics that I think are important for us to dig deeper into and to really start to think more critically 
critically about so we can have these deeper conversations um, more than just, you know, what a, a headline might allow us to get into. Um, so before the break, we were talking about a little bit about some of the histories within the U.S. of um, how Asian women have been conceptualized and perceived. And you were bringing up the point and it hinted at it earlier about um, U.S. militarism and how that has really contributed to you know, migration flows from Asia to the US for one, but then also how we have thought about Asian women and their lives or their roles um, as well. So I wanna kind of get into that some more. Um, of course, there are a few different flight jumping off places. It's like, where in history um, do we want to start? Um, but I kind of leave it up to you because there's so much that we could talk about. Um, but obviously constrained on time. So maybe if there are some key moments in, in our military history that you wanna draw out to kind of frame this conversation. Yeah, and I will offer, it's less a shameless plug, more an uplifting of those that I work with at Dartmouth who um, myself and a few of my colleagues uh, co-wrote a statement on anti-Asian violence. And we wrote this statement um, a few, probably a week before the mass shooting in Atlanta. And we've since then kind of revised it to more adequately discuss the deadly violence against massage parlor workers in Atlanta. But the way that we structured our statement um, against anti-Asian violence is by thinking about how anti-Asian violence has this long history and that in order to think about it now, we must account for its continuities mm -hmm. and its continuities are linked to things like the US military. And so uh, we can think about how it's been 150 years since East Asian women were cast as prostitutes, as sexual deviants, barred from migration in the PAGE Act that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and these women kind of represent some of the first flows of Asian women to the US. And so that that was the initial encounter on US shores means a lot. It really does structure the way that there is this uh, gendered and racialized stereotype within US military. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was 150 years ago. If we then move to a century ago, we can think about how Asian migrants suffered uh, more violence and exclusion through things like the Asiatic Barred Zone, uh, which again followed after the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so at this point, it's only been a hundred years. It's still so recent in our US history. And then we go 70 years ago, we think about Japanese internment we can think of how uh, many Japanese American communities across the US were taken from their house and placed into internment camps, precisely because they were viewed as suspect, as dangerous. Um, again, like these notions of the yellow peril are important. Mm -hmm. um, and then five decades ago, Southeast Asian migrants uh, experienced the catastrophes of imperial war in Southeast Asia and the Philippines and Cambodia and Vietnam. Um, and so to think about how these migrants were displaced, were currently refugees in the US speaks towards how America uh, has Im imploded a lot of different communities across the world. Mm -hmm. 
And then finally, we can think of, well, not finally, unfortunately, but to think of the first 20 years of this century, uh, how South Asian communities, West Asian communities, Muslim, Arabs, and Muslim-looking populations have been targets of uh, what the war on terror has ravaged um, across thinking about how they are viewed as terrorists or um, are constantly under surveillance precisely because of their form of Asian embodiment. And so this, this history of US military is definitely not thorough enough, but it does pinpoint some of the major ways the US military has impacted multiple different types of Asian groups. And so what we see in Atlanta um, really only just shows one of the ways that it's not just race and ethnicity, but it's also gender and sex that contributes to the, the way that anti-Asian violence uh, leads toward um, a sense of being invisible, but also being uh, under threat um, and dehumanized at all costs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, this term of yellow peril. And could you talk more about what that has meant and kind of where that idea first came from? Yeah, the yellow peril, um, the way that I like to teach it is actually not thinking about its um, origin, but to think about how it's been uh, discuss or how it's been affecting people throughout time. And so the yellow peril is essentially how uh, Asian people are seen as a threat to the US nation. And um, oftentimes, uh, I think that it's, it, it was created by the US media as a way because they themselves recognize the strength of at the time it was Japan. Uh, the Japanese empire, they recognized that they couldn't actually do what the Japanese empire was doing. And so they had to dehumanize them. They had to feminize them in some way. And so they made them very dangerous in US media so that they would teach their citizens to kind of view certain groups of people as dangerous. But at the same time, they would uh, kind of desexualize the men. So in the same way that the, there is this hypersexualization of Asian women, there is this desexualization or what is often called a castration of Asian men. And so while there is this yellow peril, um, we can think about it in the case of Vincent Chin, who was murdered in uh, 1982 by two white men um, on the night of his bachelor party. And so this was early 80s uh, US, it was right outside Detroit. And um, you can think about how at the moment it was, uh, Detroit was you know, very big in the motor industry. And so there was a lot of uh, influx of Japanese workers and Japanese cars that were taking the jobs of white Americans. And so uh, Chin, who was actually Chinese, was at this bar where these two white men uh, kind of were calling him slurs. And uh, he realized that um, there was gonna be an encounter. And so these men uh, kind of 
operating from the fact that they felt the threat, they felt the yellow peril taking away their job. It's not just this uh, kind of open-ended racial hatred. It's usually grounded in the very livelihood of the one who inhabits that fear. And so if white men um, were feeling as though their jobs were going to be taken away from them, then they were going to enact this fear that was already laid out for them from decades prior, which is that uh, Asian people are very capable you know, they are going to, they have the, the means and skills in which they might be able to take your jobs. And so it's still this kind of violent, deadly affair. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up this case of Vincent Chin, because for so many people, they've never heard of, you know, what happened with Vincent Chin, have never heard of this name um, and you know what ended up happening, which was that he was murdered by these two white men who, as you mentioned, um, felt that very real kind of fear around their own livelihood, around losing you know something, um, not just economically, but also psychically, like losing something to these people, right? That in their imagination, weren't even really American, right? So taking something that was really theirs um, and, but this case was so important as we think about an Asian American consciousness or continued Asian American consciousness um, and, and the activism and solidarity across Asian ethnic racial lines in particular that it really spurred. And so for folks who are unfamiliar with you know, Asian American activism or Asian American history, this was you know, one of those big moments within the Asian American um, community to, for folks to really rally together, but also I think in many ways to um, object to or challenge this idea of the model minority myth, which in the 80s was also kind of taking a strong hold as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that um, for the exact same reasons that you outlined with the, the importance of the Chin case to galvanize Asian Americans, it also kind of allows us to think about the ways that hate crimes are utilized to kind of grapple, contend, and potentially try to organize and eradicate the actual, the, the anti-Asian violence that's happening today. Because the difficulty with hate crimes is that you have to, well, based on the legislation, you have to be able to essentially prove that the, that the person who was inflicting the said hate crime harbored racist notions. And so this is something that is easily, can easily be the case if someone had written a manifesto spurring racial hatred. Um, but if someone doesn't, like in the case, I think of what's gonna end up happening with Robert uh, Aaron Long is that I don't think that he had enough written about uh, anti-Asian hatred. So I don't think it's going to be tried as a hate crime. And so the difficulty in providing evidence kind of links us back to what we began talking about, which is racial fetish. So racial fetish is another weird thing where you can't necessarily prove always. Sometimes people might openly admit, yes, I have a racial preference and I have a racial fetish, but other times people don't. So in the, again, the case of Atlanta, he didn't say that he had racial preferences. He said he had temptations mm -hmm. creating or objectifying Asian women in a particular type of way. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's so important because the burden of proof is really high when you're trying to, you know, prove that this was the intention, right? That it was racially motivated. And 
you know, with the Vincent Chin case, that was actually the first case that a hate crime um, was brought against someone who had perpetrated a crime against an Asian American. So also another reason why that case is, you know, very important as we're thinking about Asian American history. But as we're thinking about, you know, this most current case um, with Robert Aaron Long, as you mentioned, you know, proving that it was a hate crime will be very difficult. Um, even though we can see what the results of his actions were, that they were in fact targeting a specific racial group, but how can we, you know, prove those motives? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think there's just a lot more that we can organize around other than hate. I think that hate isn't, I think hate is very important. I think that hate gets towards the deep-seated emotions that govern our very lives, whether they're the bad emotions like hate and shame or the beautiful ones like joy um, and pleasure. But I think to, to even just kind of compare the different hashtags that define our movements is uh, worth having those conversations with our family members and friends. Like to think about hashtag Black Lives Matter and then to think about Stop Asian Hate and to think about the weird emojis that also populate these ones, like the flower emoji on the Stop Asian Hate. Um, I was looking closely at it today on Twitter and it seems like it's a lotus flower with like a heart in the middle. It's just weird. Like it, it doesn't need to be that um, excessive. Like we we get the, the, the representation. Um, but I, I think it's just, it's, a, it's one way that folks have tried to make things better. And I think to remember with the chin case and to think about how Asian American as an identity marker is really new. It's like, it's, it, it was created um, as a result of activists in the Bay Area who were working alongside uh, uh, Black organizers um, to organize not only against police violence and racism on the US land, but to also think about indigeneity, to think about imperialism. Like it was a political formation that prior to then, there were only terms like oriental to, to describe, for like white people to describe Asian people. And so Asian American was this collectivized political formation that came out not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't really realize that, of course, now with the U.S. Census, I feel like this term of Asian American is kind of more popular. It's just like, oh, this is what we call these folks who, you know, have some origins um, from a variety of different Asian countries. Uh, but I'm so glad you brought up that this was a self-determined, politicized identity meant to really say something, right, to the folks who identified in this way. Um, and really meant to stand against um, Orientalism orientalism as well, right? Because as you mentioned prior to that, it was all about the Orient or you are Oriental. And even for me, when I think about when I was younger and growing up, people still very much use this term Oriental. And Mm -hmm. even in more common kind of lexicon, Asian American is still very new. Yeah. And there are some issues with the term, right? Like it, it definitely has its, there are assumptions that are read within it. So oftentimes we can think about how there is this dominance of East Asian narratives and uh, storylines and there and discourses that are talked about more likely, but Asian American really does encapsulate. Um, of course you can think about the continent of Asia, 
but I was trying to explain earlier about how there is differences between what it means to live a life as an East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian. Um, and even within those, there are different ethnicities. And so, you know, terms fail, uh, words fail. They don't adequately capture the breadth of and the depth of everyone's experiences, but still they're kind of, I think the important thing to remember is that it's about the coalitions and it's about the community and collectivity that allow even a, a conversation about racial fetish to enter into different types of ways that people are sexualized or are not sexualized because these things matter to anybody that's living and breathing right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm joined by Dr. Anna Storty, a postdoctoral fellow in Asian American Studies at Dartmouth College with an appointment in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. So we have been talking um, very broadly, right, about so many things, <laughs> but thinking about racial fetish, but also thinking about um, the histories of Asians in America and very various legislation, but also military actions that have shaped um, who is in America, thinking about Asians in America, but also how Asians in America are often perceived and seen, um, and really using um, the most recent mass shooting targeting Asian women as kind of a way to frame our conversation. And so one thing that we talked about or kind of talked around a little bit is one, this, you know, Asian fetish, right? So that piece of it, um, but also this idea of um, white supremacy and how we, and so what I wanted to ask you was how we see um, both this Asian fetish among men, particularly in the alt-right, so very prominent white nationalist men who date and even marry Asian women, but also holding these very white nationalist views, right? And so how is this, how is this reconciled or how does this make sense? I mean, I, that's my, that's my book, you know, like I'm, I'm working on it. It's, it's just, it's so fascinating to me how white nationalists have yellow fever. Mm -hmm. And um, because I think it, it says a lot about the ways that Asian Americans, um, oftentimes East Asians are kind of viewed as proximate to whiteness or like white adjacent. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are, it's kind of falls within the model minority myth, which is this idea that uh, Asians are kind of uplifted uh, against the, the other minoritarian uh, racialized groups, which are, so Asians do it right. Asians kind of put their nose down, they work hard, they're there for their men. And so with this comes this assumption that they are, cisgender, heterosexual, they're at least middle class. And so these are all obviously not um, comprehensive to what the Asian American experience is. But when it comes to the kind of the newfound post-Trump white nationalist party, um, someone like Richard Spencer has been known to date many Asian American women. And I read recently that he was kind of uncomfortable when the journalists 
uh, brought that out to him because he said, well, now, you know, like now I believe in white nationalism. So now I don't date Asian girls, but still, and he was quoted saying something along the lines of there's something about Asian girls, like they're cute and they just have a something about them. And so it speaks to this form of um, allure that is obscured, but is still very much uh, exoticized. And so, um, you know, when we think about the alt-right um, and white supremacy's kind of sexualized preferences, Asian people occupy this kind of exception oftentimes. So we can remember um, Dylan Roof, who uh, was the mass shooter in Charleston um, five years ago, six years ago. He wrote in his manifesto um, that while he is very much white nationalist, people who are Chinese and Japanese could potentially be useful allies to the white race because they are very good at uh, cultivating their empires. And so still there's this exception that white, that white people hold for Asian Americans. And so we can think about the men that perpetuate this notion, but it's also important to think about the women, the Asian American women who um, very much do not agree with the notion and the beginnings, the very radical transformative justice beginnings of the concept, the moniker of Asian American. So they are on the right. And so uh, someone that I talk about a lot is Michelle Malkin, who is the Filipina American uh, far right journalist, um, who is known for many troubling associations, including her loud support of the Proud Boys. And so she's currently employed by Newsmax and um, she's married to a white man and she has been loud about being against affirmative action and against any of the other kind of more progressive policies. And so again, like whether or not uh, Michelle Malkin's husband has an Asian fetish is less the point. It's more so about what happens when Asian femininity and white masculinity pair up in this type of way um, to, again, think through the ways that white supremacy necessitates more than whiteness to maintain its power. Uh, it needs women, it needs people of color, it needs difference in order to really take over because again, we see in this world, the world is not white in a, in a few decades, the whiteness will be in the minority, but still it can hold its power. And so I think that there's um, really interesting cases such as the tiger mom stereotype. So the tiger mom, for those who might not know, uh, is this notion that was uh, created by Amy Chua, who is a professor at Yale Law School. And so essentially if you're a tiger mom, uh, you're usually like associated with East Asian identity and you kind of push and pressure your children to do the very best they can in their academics. So they need to succeed. They need to get good grades. They need to not only get straight A's, but also be very participate, participate a lot in different extracurricular activities. And so uh, these women are not only you know, occupying the stereotype of sexually available uh, lotus blossoms or, or what have you, but they're also tiger moms. So they not only provide the sex, but they also provide the parenting and the cooking for their, for their white husbands, likely. And so again, like this is something that uh, is more than just a case by case basis. It's not like just because you're someone who's in an interracial relationship, you are somehow like part of the problem. 
it's more so about recognizing the deep history that does find itself within, uh, you know, the, the very far right side of U.S. politics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, right? Um, but I love how you really, you know, talked about how it's much more complicated than kind of just these racy headlines or, you know, these optics that we might see of um, white and Asian interracial couples, right? So one, this very long history of um, some of these racialized stereotypes, but then also how they all, um, seek to support uh, white supremacy in ways that maybe we're not used to looking for or looking at, right? Um, that most of these issues are, of course, far more complex um, than we're often able to really identify because of these long histories that we often aren't even aware of, right? So even thinking about how we started our time together this morning, um, just thinking about some of the long history of, again, legislation that was directed at excluding um, Asian migration or um, ways that we've uh, enacted specific policies in order to incarcerate and detain and surveil various Asian American um, ethnic groups as well. But without knowing any of these histories then some of these things that are happening in the present day seem isolated or seem you know, very unique. But as you know, we've talked about today, it's not really that unique, right? This is just a long, kind of the long, um, ways that we've seen um, racism operate <laughs> in our country. Um, now, I know we're clo getting close to the end of our time here this morning, but I wanted to give a few minutes to talk a little bit more about um, sex work and sex workers and kind of try to add a little more nuance to these conversations, um, particularly, again, in light of Robert Aaron Long's targeting of Asian women, particularly Asian spas, in the way that the media, as you mentioned, really, you know, avoided talking and giving dimension to um, the victims' lives. And part of that very much tied up into how we think about um, sex workers or assumptions around sex workers as well. Yes, I mean, I'm happy to end here because I think that it's important to think about sex work and to think about care work more broadly as, um, very as as forms of labor that are easily that are made easily accessible to Asian migrants, particularly because of these assumptions that uh, Asian people are more you know inclined to care and that they are gentle and that they are available. So you can think not only just about sex work, but to think about different forms of nursing and domestic labor, to think about um, the the folks who are working in nail salons and in restaurants. Um, and garment workers. And so I think what's important is to first read up on what it means to decriminalize sex work. I think that Asian massage workers in particular are uniquely policed and uh, assumed to be part of the sex industry, whether or not they are part of it. Um, and so for both cases, whether the Atlanta women who were killed were sex workers, whether they were victims of sex trafficking, uh, or uh, whatever, it doesn't really matter because the, what matters is the reality of the mass surveillance, the mass policing and the constant fear that is, kind of defines the life of women who are working within these types of trades. 
And so I think what's important to do is to support the campaigns of those working on the grounds. Red Canary Song has been really based in New York, has been a grassroots migrant labor and sex workers rights organization, particularly for Asian migrants. Um, and they've been raising a lot of funds and have uh, for many years been devoting their time to thinking about what it means to provide affordable housing, housing, uh, working conditions that are safe, um, thinking about uh, creating a living wage and avenues that uh, pursue justice in ways that are not carceral. And so that don't involve more policing because there have been many cases in which uh, something terrible happens, a violent mass murder has happened. And sometimes the, the desire is to ask for more surveillance, to ask for people who can protect people who are there in arms and can help protect the people inside. But at the same time, we have to understand that the police never make these women feel safe. The police never make communities of color feel safe because the police are only another arm of, we can call it US militarism. It's just on the US soil. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I just wanna um, ask you a, a couple of quick questions as we're thinking about sex work, um, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions around sex work and just this jump immediately to, um, I think really demonize in many cases, sex workers as well. Um, could you speak more to why that is the case? I think things like respectability and morals and uh, even the sanctity of something like marriage uh, really do inform our, our uh, misconstrued understandings of what sex work is. And there is this assumption that sex work is bad, that you should not be a sex worker, that if you are a sex worker, it's not the right type of career that you should be proud of. And so these are all kind of notions that uh, are meant to kind of breed people towards the right career paths. Mm -hmm. um, but also sex work has been kind of one of the oldest trades and it's not going to go away. And that's okay because some people love doing sex work, but whether or not you love sex work or you are finding yourself use, doing sex work to kind of earn a living, it's a matter of thinking about collective safety and, uh, and that's why I think that I always end up turning back to, we need to decriminalize sex work because if we decriminalize, then sex workers are actually safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we're getting ready to close out our time together this morning, uh, but I always like to give my guests the opportunity um, to kind of um, share resources or even things that listeners maybe should be thinking about moving forward. Um, around the topics that we've discussed. So we talked about so much today, but if there are maybe just a few resources that you could share with folks um, or ways for people to learn more, or even if there are specific um, policies or legislation that might be on the horizon that folks could um, take a look at and learn more about, I wanna give you the opportunity to share any of those with our listeners this morning. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Sana. Um, I would recommend folks reading up on transformative justice. 
It's a political and practical framework for responding to violence and abuse and harm uh, in ways that uh, don't involve more policing. And so it really is a beautiful way to think about what to do next after these moments of intense violence in which uh, it seems like every night I go to sleep looking at my feed and I see another instance, I see another video. And so ways to think about what to do next uh, it's helpful to think about transformative justice. Mm -hmm. I would also recommend folks directing funds and supporting the events that are put forth by Red Canary Song, uh, particularly thinking about the use of Asian, uh, the importance of listening to Asian migrant sex workers. Um, and moving forward, I think that we are all, at least I can speak for myself, I'm constantly depleted. I am tired and afraid of the threat of violence, not only on my own body, but on the bodies of my family members and my friends. And so I think the only way to build safety measures that truly defend us uh, and defend us from harm lie outside, outside the bounds of anything we've really seen on a national scale. And so looking inward towards um, transformative justice is a way to do that. So reading up on Black and Asian solidarity, Black and Asian feminist solidarity, the Asian American Feminist Collective uh, has put out really great resources and has constantly been at the forefront of kind of distilling all the things that we've talked about here in ways that are uh, useful for folks at any stage in their own learning and their own process. Um, and ultimately, I think if you're interested in this type of work to just continue learning more, to uh, think robustly about what it means to be a member of the world, to kind of appreciate that you are living at this moment and history is watching. And uh, it's like a really precious experience to be able to be alive in a moment of urgency that has been kind of brewing since much before George Floyd's death. And so we need to really think about and challenge the notion that uh, these individual travesties and massacres um, are individual, that they are actually about a larger historical context and that our only way forward is to work together. And so join movements, think about what it means to defund the police, think about the beautiful art that is created by people of color and thinking about how they survive life in the threat of violence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you, Sana. It was great to be here. Thank you again to Dr. Anna Storty for joining us this morning. I feel like I say this every Saturday that I learn so much, but it is just so true. Every Saturday morning, I learn so much from my guests and I hope you have been able to take a few nuggets away with you this morning as well. So for today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this quote that says, Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And remember, you can always catch up with me every Saturday morning or catch up with previous episodes on WYXR.org. I cannot wait to see you back here again next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.